Hello, and welcome to another edition of Bergcast, the podcast where we cast a fond eye over the work of writer Nigel Neal in film, television, and occasionally other media. This time, we were really excited to have as our guest artist and writer Stephen R. Bissett, a bona fide horror legend who, having produced a significant body of graphic work, is perhaps best known as one of the primary collaborators with Alan Moore on the seminal 80s run of DC Comics' Swamp Thing, where Steve drew some of the most disturbing illustrations ever published in mainstream American comics, and which are credited in part for bringing about the downfall of the American Comics Code Authority. But Steve has also produced a significant corpus of writing on the horror genre in all media over the space of several decades, including, most recently, an exhaustive study of David Cronenberg's early highlight, The Brood, which appears in PS Publishing's Midnight Movie Monograph series. Stephen joined us to talk about the one time Nigel Neal shared a credit with Ray Harryhausen in the 1964 film adaptation of H.G. Wells' First Men in the Moon which gave us all plenty of material to grapple with as we touched on why these films have resonated with us since childhood, how stop-motion animation takes us right into the uncanny valley, and whether First Men in the Moon is really the first fully realised alien culture in cinema. This is Bergcast, episode 26. First Men in the Moon, featuring Stephen Bissett. Welcome to Birdcast, uh, Stephen Bissett. It's an incredible honor to be here with both of you. Uh, I, no, seriously, and to be talking about Nigel Neal in particular, one of my all-time favorite writers in any medium. So, yes, in, in, indeed. But um, this is uh, not quite our first overseas uh, episode, but uh, certainly our first transatlantic. And this is normally the part of the podcast where I will ask you how you first encountered Nigel Neal, and I still will do that, uh, but I, I normally caveat it with, was it through Doctor Who? And in this case, it almost certainly isn't going to be through Doctor well, Who. Well, it's, inter it's interesting you say that. It was not Doctor Who, but I will add the caveat that um, uh, I, I was born and raised in northern Vermont, um, and uh, we got three Canadian TV stations. Uh, channel 6 out of Toronto, Channel 12 out of Montreal, and Channel 10 out of Quebec. Um, and they were broadcasting Doctor Who right from the get-go because uh, I can't recall if it was CBC out of uh, Toronto or Channel 12 out of Montreal, but they would pick up the BBC programming. Um, we got to see Monty Python before the rest of America did. Um, so Doctor Who was an early uh, experience for me, but... That was after I had seen First Men in the Moon. Um, and that's your first Nigel Neal. Uh, that's experience. my first Nigel Neal. It was, uh, I, you know, I grew up in a, a very blue collar working class family, military family at that. And uh, talking my parents into going to see anything that was science fiction or, you know, horror or monster related was a near impossible task. But uh, because Walt Disney had done 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, which we'd seen in the theater, uh, my parents somehow inexplicably 
uh, agreed that First Men in the Moon would be a family outing. And I got to see it at an indoor theater, the Capitol Theater in Montpelier, Vermont, our state capital. And uh, it was transformative. And that was my first Nigel Neal. And even though I was only what? I was nine. Yeah, nine. Um, I was already reading film credits because I had figured out from quite a young age uh, that it was the names of the people uh, who made something were important. And I was also a monster kid. I had been reading famous monsters of film land. Uh, and th there was a whole flood of monster magazines here in America at that time. So I was, mm -hmm. I was paying close attention to names and Nigel Neal's name registered uh, for me. And um, First Man in the Moon really, really captured me. Um, it's still my favorite of all of Ray Harry Austin's films, so. It was my first um, exposure to the work of Nigel Neal as well. Um, I saw it a little later um, in the 1980s. It was broadcast on the BBC at, about six, at a tea time showing. And because um, in the 1980s on BBC two at 6 p.m. you would have an old sci-fi movie ah. or an old Tarzan movie or an old Sherlock Holmes movie or whatever. And First Men in the Moon was one of those. Um, I remember it profoundly, but um, like you, I was someone who um, picked up on the credits of movies, but I ceased on it because it was a Ray Harryhausen movie when I Same was here. Yeah. Um, Same here, but Ray was the was known, the Ray Harryhausen was the known quantity to me, even at age yeah. nine. Yeah. Um, yeah. Nigel Neal was the unknown quantity and I was familiar, I had already read the H.G. Wells novel and that was because here in America, um, our local news racks always carried Classics Illustrated. And Classics oh. Illustrated had done a comic book version of First Men in the Moon, which I had read to, almost to pieces <laughs> prior to the film, you know, even being announced in, in Famous Monsters. So, uh, so the, the, the process for me was the comic book adaptation, which was quite beautiful. Um, Al Williamson was one of the artists on that uh, from the old EC science fiction comics and um, best known these days for his association with Star Wars and Flash Gordon. And then I had read the Wells novel, which was a tough read for an eight, eight year old. <laughs> mm. um, Imagine it would be, yeah. Well, um, but I, you know, it, it, it hit, the Classics Illustrated adaptation was quite good. And yeah, the Wells they, novels, um, hit all the beats they were pretty amazing the classics illustrated they um they revived them in the 1990s when i was a teenager and i remember um picking picking up on their existence then when i was a teenager so i i have p craig russell's adaptation of um the fall of the house of usher ah yes and those are the later one. yeah the late that, ones yeah that iteration of great classics was... fights that they did as well yeah yeah that iteration of classics illustrated were no pun intended, pretty classy. <laughs> um, They're nice. The one, they were in um, perfect bound sort of. Yeah, that wasn't how they were when I was a lad. They were, yeah. <laughs> they, were they were comic books. Um, yeah, yeah. Just, just to give a, a, a more of a touchstone flavor of, of, of your childhood when you were going to see, see, these, see these films is quite a lot of our readers. Uh, readers, listeners will, uh, but not exclusively, be, 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 be in Britain. I've been to Vermont, uh, but Vermont is uh, probably known now as sort of the bluest of blue states. It's famous for Bernie Sanders. It's meant to be uber liberal. Is that a little simplistic of what it was like growing up? 
when there were no Democrats in Vermont when I was growing up. Vermont right. was a diehard Republican state. So diehard that uh, for those film buffs out there, as well as you, John, <laughs> there is a depression era comedy called uh, Alibaba Goes to Town. It's an Eddie Cantor musical. And there's actually a joke in there about there being no living Democrats in Vermont or Maine. And when I was growing up in Vermont, it was uh, very much a Republican state. But I stress it was a 1950s, early 60s incarnation of Republicanism. Yeah. You know, it's not what we have mm. today uh, in the year 2021, which is a party I don't even recognize any longer as, as being Republican. Um, you know, it was very rural. I was in a very rural pocket of Vermont. I lived in Duxbury, which is spelled D-U-X-B-U-R-Y. Like a lot of New England, there's a lot of transpositions of villages and towns from the United Kingdom over mm. to Vermont, to mm. New Hampshire, Maine, and so on. And um, very rural. I mean, I grew, I was one of those kids who grew up, you know, spending entire days out in the woods or out in, in the fields or fishing or whatever. Um, and, uh, but I was also one of those kids, <laughs> it was my habit whenever I came across a flat rock to turn it up to see what was under it, you know? Mm -hmm. So I, I had observed for hours ant colonies. And uh, I think that's part of why First Men in the Moon really resonated with me right there, you know? The selenites were very much uh, part of the ecosystem I saw around me. I recognized the extrapolation there. Oh, ant colonies, the selenites made perfect sense. So, okay, yeah. Knowing what I know about your artwork as well, you could sort of see that fascination with bugs. Oh yeah. In a lot yeah. of your stuff. You, 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 they, you, I, I, I like the very organic earthy quality that you bring and the, the fact that many of your pages are crawling with flies and ants and centipedes and things. And uh, yeah. That's that's that to me is real, Howard, right? Yeah. Um, uh, I don't look. There's a bug calling on my screen as we're talking. Oh, <laughs> must have heard us. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's very that that's part of what prompted me to draw in the first place. To begin right. drawing was I would draw from nature and I would draw from uh, books on nature, so on and so forth. And what's your earliest memory then of Harryhausen films, if you were familiar with him by the time the first Men in the Moon? Oh, John, it's really primal memory for me. I was about four years old and The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms was on television. And I had to have been three or four because I was young enough to know it wasn't real and enjoy the spectacle of it. But I wasn't old enough yet to fully grasp that. And when it ended up on Coney Island, I knew Coney Island was a real place. I'd never been there. I mean, you know, we were very rural Vermonters, but I knew it was a real place. And I was trying to talk my father into driving us to Coney Island before the Redosaurus died. <laughs> and of course he could make no sense of what I was babbling about. And oh, um, <laughs> so I was really young when I saw the beast from 20,000 Fathoms. And I remember being just riveted by it. And, um, Stop motion animation is really magical to me. Uh, I, I, I understand that it doesn't work for some people. And I've read a number of studies that point out that for some people, the nature of how stop motion animation used to be done for cinema, where it was 24 frames a second, does not register as a smooth transition from frame to frame the way it does for some of us. That there's a perceptual difference between just how people see uh, but I was always seduced by stop motion animation and Ray Harry Hawson 
uh, was probably my first hero in life was Ray Harryhausen. Uh, because I understood early on, thanks to an article in a famous Monsters of Filmland that Forrest J. Ackerman wrote, that he was a person and that he had seen King Kong when he was a, a lad. And that had inspired him to pursue this path in life. And that, like, that was like having the world opened up to me right there. And I also, as I got older, as I became a teenager, and I could see the differences between uh, say the career path of Willis O'Brien and the career Willis O'Brien being the stop motion animation, yeah. the stop motion animation pioneer behind King Kong and Son of Kong and Mighty Joe Young, and what Ray Harry Hawson did, I also began to grasp that Ray Harry Hawson had a better grasp of business, that he was able to further his career as an artist, and that became important to me as well. Um, I mean, that's part of why I pursued self-publishing from a fairly fairly early age in my. Uh, before I was 20. And uh, so Harry Hawson was a very real role model and hero to me, but the magic of what he did was absolutely intoxicating to me and, and still is. I made sure to raise my kids who are now in their thirties on Ray's films. And I am right now enjoying the great pleasure of introducing my grandchildren to Ray Harry Hawson's film, Seventh Voyage of Sinbad being the entry the oh, entry-level yeah. drug. <laughs> and the so, same director, and the same director, I believe, as uh, First Men of the Moon. Nathan Juran, right? Nathan and Juren, we should yeah. talk a little bit about him because he's a uh, talk about yeah, strange, we'll, you know, yeah, anyway. yeah, we'll come yeah. to it. Just, I mean, this is an era. Um, um, what well, it would it be? Sixty-four. So we're probably yep. about come to the era. Of, you know, you've had for the last maybe ten years the sort of uh, adaptation of Wells and Verne stories uh, that have sort of the, the Impossible Voyage subgenre going towards sort of what would be a sort of proto steampunk, which would become very fashionable because of this Victorian era of celebration on, I think, I, I think on screen. And there's something, you talk about the frame rate, uh, like childhood memory in, in, in Britain, this might not have been America, but in Britain, there's a certain thing when you see something on 16 millimeter film, remember yep. your child, remember your childhood, that's somehow a bit dangerous. And, and that's to do with as much what you associate with as well. But the frame rates being slightly slower for the, or slightly faster for the, um, for the animation, uh, there's, there's a good sort of uncanny valley stuff going on there that might not, that might not be entirely, uh, entirely planned, but it's effective that this is moving slightly wrong. There is something disturbing even in its, even in its movement, regardless of the fact of its, of its nature. I find that that's, that still stays with me in the way that the ultra smooth, ultra realism of, 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 of the last words of CGI and green screen have been done. There's something that still unsettles me about Jason and the Argonauts. Well, I, I was about to mention yeah, the skeleton yeah. fight from Jason yep. and the Argonauts as a classic yeah. example of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that stuff was like, uh, you know, that, that was <laughs> manna from heaven for me. <laughs> Um, and still is. I, I've never outgrown. I've never outgrown it. Um, and uh, and I think with First Man on the Moon, it was also it was my first experience in a theater with Ray Harryhausen's work. It was also his first, right. and I I believe only Panavision film. Um, so it was a really opulent spectacle. I mean, it 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 looked lavish in in the context of the kind of films we were seeing in 1964. There was a yeah. there was a sense of spectacle too. It was very you 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 know we've both mentioned now, or all three of us have mentioned now the Jules Verne and H. G. Wells adaptations that were happening. Mm -hmm. The Time Machine was 1960, the George Powell film, which I didn't yeah. see until it was on television a little later. Um, but 
uh, I was growing up in a military family. We were going to see spectacles quite often. My dad, I grew up watching World War II movies, uh, including a lot of British World War II films, right? Sink the Bismarck um, and films like that. And, um, uh, and First Man on the Moon was measured right up with those. I mean, it was a very convincing and, uh, and, and, and wonderful screen spectacle. Well, I mean, given when it's made, I think one of the, 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 the big surprises from it, if you're coming at it from the, from the novel, is it opens with um, the United Nations landing on the moon in 1964. Um, yes, yes. Now, that's, um, I, I want to think of the slightly, the, the, uh, the, the disaster that, that precedes uh, the, uh, the space link-up in Nigel Neal's 79 crater mass. Here we have, as should be perfect, the United Nations in about five or six different nationalities all coming to the moon together, including Russians, uh, Chinese, uh, French, British, Americans, all together, all happy. In 1964, um, uh, we, are, we have the perfect utopia of, of um, human discovery rather than the reality. And it's clearly there for a piece of verisimilitude because I, Howard and I would discuss like, you know, they've never fully, they could never do um, Lovecraft the Mountains of Madness because you've got you know what Antarctica looks like now the uh, the, the the genuine the genuine unknown is gone you'd have to reintroduce that and that would yeah. require right. an extra explanation take through it you can never do so you know when, when um, Neil was approached this like you have to do this quickly once they're there you can never do this film um, so but yet the ad adding of that strong um, strongly realistic opening nevertheless has a huge slice of utopia uh, within it as it tries you know, to, as it tries to make it real and i, I, I find i find that very interesting because it was well, clear, I, clear that was unrealistic but they wanted to make that point I, think. I i will point out i mean a lot of people these days it's fashionable to chalk that up to gene roddenberry and star trek but i will point out that within the context of uh an international co-production because it was a an american mm -hmm. british co-production um within the frame of a co-production, it was actually quite standard by 1964 to have uh, multinational um, explorers going to other planets. Um, out of uh, Eastern Europe, we had films like um, Akiri XB1, which played here in the US as Voyage to the End of the Universe. Um, the one I saw as a kid was um, First Spaceship on Venus, it was called here in the United States. And, it had an, an international cast of astronauts, including an Asian woman in the crew. Um, and there was also, the Italians were already doing it uh, in um, uh, films like uh, Spacemen um, and the early Gamma, Gamma series uh, that, that were being made in Italy. So uh, I think Nigel and Jan Reed, we, we have to mention Jan Reed as, as, <laughs> as credited co-screenwriter, um, were very much of their time. What was unusual is that the framing uh, device, which constitutes almost 20 minutes of the opening of the film, yeah. it's quite a long frame that's set up, is very British, you know, including- Incredibly. Yeah. You can't get more British than Miles Mallison being, you know, <laughs> the actor who is the one that directs them to where uh, Edward Judd's character is still alive in a in a yeah, in, and in a and not only is it is it really British, it's really sixties British exactly. As well. Yeah, it's it it's a familiar trope from Ely, well, just maybe after Ely comedy, an early carry on before they went in. So let's see, you know, a mid sixties carry on in terms of its movement, in terms of its tone, and certainly in terms of 
what Laurie Johnson does with the with, yeah. With, so in a weird way, music. it's post. It's proposing a post Cold World world, Cold War world, a post Cold War world because Russians are on the spacecraft as well. Yeah. But in reality, seeing it in 1964. It's a pre-Beatles era yeah, England is, that we're seeing yeah. as well. You know, there's no component of, you know, what what we began to fantasize here in the states. London was like, <laughs> um, no, because... it's 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 really it's, if if not England, then yeah, what what Britain would laugh about itself that it's slightly amateur and a bit weird and eccentric, um, com combined with uh, the fact you've just learned that Brits have been on the have been on the moon. Uh, for, um, several, yeah. in, in the last century. Um, right, so and, yeah. and it, it also, um, uh, it also uh, is um, quite up to date with the technology of 1963, of how they yep. thought the moon, a moon yeah, landing yeah. would yeah. be mounted. And, and it was so up to date uh, that CBS News, in fact, used clips from First Men of the Moon to so the night of the moon landing, right? Because they had yeah. no way of visualizing what the Apollo mission looked like. So they were actually using excerpts from Harry Hausen's effects of the contemporary moon landing on CBS News, the night of the moon landing. I was they had, they had NASA blueprints, didn't they, for the, uh, for the design? I mean, they right. changed, but they had NASA blueprints from that, what they thought it would be like in about 62, 63. Yeah, NASA was gets credit in the... Uh... Yeah. Yeah, they let they, they let them, they, they, they let them have certain. I don't think how the specifications were, but they, it was to make it real enough. And that opening sequence, um, the shot of the of the lander detaching from the detaching from the, the capsule and going down is almost stolen uh, frame by frame from from Star Wars for Star Wars. Sorry, right, right. As, as the um, as the escape by capsule Star leaves, Wars. Sorry, by Star yeah, Wars. But... Yes, as the escape <laughs> capsule leaves leaves the uh, leaves the um, captured Rebel ship. That framing of the spinning, tiny, tiny craft going into yep. uh, going into the unknown, you can see as a as a, as, a, as, as, as captured. And although Doctor Who will steal many, many things throughout Nigel Neal's career, uh, Mark Gatiss <laughs> wholesale in the cold opening to the Peter Capaldi st story, Empress of Mars, opens with uh, Victorians being discovered on Mars, which is clearly a massive homage to, to this, to, 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 the, to the start of this. And the juxtaposition of something, as I said, this clearly the sequence is added to give it, to give it verisimilitude, but the sequence added into such a ridiculous nature that you find, uh, you find a piece of paper and and and, and a union flag is is, uh, is 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 clearly done with the hey you don't know what's going on hey there's a weird juxtaposition there hey this is an interesting this is an interesting story and that's a and that's that you know you're going to be alright from that moment because when I first saw it I didn't know that it was going to be set in um, late Victorian era at all. I thought oh, this, really? was, this was just going to be an updated version of, of First Men of the Moon. Mm. And these were guys that were going to find, you know, the Selenites. So that was lovely to see. To see. It wasn't going to be a 60s uh, imaginings. And then there's like, you know, the retro futurism. But you get away with it because it's, it's, all, it's, because it's Victoriana. It's, it's well, it's not only Victoriana. I mean, I was already reading as much science fiction as I could get my hands on, which was hard to find as a kid in, in, in uh, Duxbury, Vermont. Uh, in the early 60s. But luckily, we had a good local library in the neighboring town, Waterbury. And even within the context of science fiction at the time, what Neil set up, what Neil and Reed set up with the framing device was uh, it lent it urgency, right? It, this is happening now, the film yeah, says to you. Yeah, yeah. And then 
the bulk of the narrative is the flashback where we're told what mm. happened in the 1890s. Um, it also was consistent with uh, a trope that both Arthur C. Clarke and Nigel Neal um, had uh, brought into the, the 50s uh, in science fiction. And that was the discovery of an artifact that suggests a prior uh, discovery or a prior uh, cross-fertilization between an alien culture and our own. And I'm thinking specifically of Arthur Clarke's um, story, The Sentinel, which became the premise for 2001 in Space Odyssey. Yeah. And Nigel, of course, did it with Quatermass in the Pit. Um, and, and in a way, you look at that template and there's almost, there's almost an overlay of pacing between the BBC first chapter of Quatermass in the Pit and that opening of First Men in the Moon, right? Um, there is, but by turning that on its head and making um, its humans appear in an alien environment, as opposed to aliens appearing in a human environment, you're immediately struck by, well, this is impossible. Right. At, at least in a, a, a Martian spaceship, you can go, oh, okay, they have an advanced civilization, or they had a more advanced civilization. Here you go, that is impossible. What's going on? Here's the right, here's what exactly. here's, here's what we tell you, and that's that's what I mean about a hook. I don't know what's going to happen, but it's going to be fun finding out, and that's a brilliant. That's why it's a brilliant opening. It, it's also a brilliant opening uh, because it sets up the character. I mean, we're going to meet Edward Judd's character, the yeah. the traveler. He is not the catalyst for the moon trip. He is not he is not Cavour, who's played by no, Lionel no, Jeffries, but as soon as they get into the flashback material, <laughs> I, I hate to be so anal about this, but hopefully, John, you'll see the correlation. And Howard, if you haven't seen it, please see the man in the white suit. The I've sound, the, man white suit. the man in the white suit with Alec Guinness is, a, is an Ealing Studios science fiction film yes. in which Alec Guinness plays a man who invents an indestructible fabric. His lab, which constantly has explosions, they have a sound effect that they use for the sound of the chemical that Guinness has created, which is almost identical to the sound of the bubbling Cavorite in Cavor's lab. Um, is it deliberate? Probably not. I mean, they're all pirating the same sort of special effects and sound effects libraries for these films. Yeah, mm -hmm. we'll, we'll, come um, on, we'll come on to alien voices later. I have yeah, yeah, but I don't, I don't doubt that there may have been somebody in the production who, you know, because uh, I, I did get to spend some time with Ray Harryhaus and two hours in his home in London. And oh, wow. he very generously gave me about, uh, I'd say about five hours spread over three days to do an interview when he was in San Diego with his wife. And um, Ray was such a film buff, right? And I have no doubt that he had seen and knew the man in the white suit. And it was the type of film he would have loved. You know, Ray was very old fashioned in his taste. Um, and, and it was funny how it would bubble up. Like I could never get him to talk about Fiend Without a Face. It's, it's as if the film didn't exist for him. And yet to me, stop motion animation was, was the, the stop motion animation at the end of Fiend Without a Face is right up there with the work that Ray was doing. He acted like the film didn't exist because it was gory. He did not approve of gore in cinema. He did not approve of more explicit sexual content. So I, I'm sure he knew the Ealing Studios films inside and out. And uh, I have to wonder if Ray may have had some input with that sound of cabaret.
visitors. Mr. Arnold Bedford. I'm Richard Chalice of the UN Space Agency. This is Miss Margaret Hoy, Mr. Gluschoff, and Dr. Tock. Please, sir, won't you sit down? I hope you don't mind us barging in like this, but I just want to ask you one question. We can save you by any chance. Have you ever seen these things before? My glass, yes. How did you... How did you find... You found them on the moon, didn't you? What did you interview um, Ray Harryhausen about? Did it did it encompass? Was it just his career? Or did I it was trying to cover his career, yes. Yeah. And it, it appeared in uh, two uh, issues of Animato magazine back in the 1990s. And right. Ray was very generous with his time. Um, it was hard to ask him questions that would not elicit. Ray already had standard answers, you know, like, yeah, like sure. most people who work in, in any media, yeah. particularly film. You know, he had certain riffs he would go back to and I was doing my best to coax him out of that without being too you know brusque or, or aggressive about it so um but it was a terrific interview I only wish I had been as um savvy yeah about First Men in the Moon I wish I had asked him more than technical questions I would love to know where certain aspects of that production came from were they in Nigel Neal's script because they're not in the H.G. Wells novel right uh, there's a lot in the hj wells novel yeah but that doesn't yeah it doesn't it, it but that material that's unique to the novel is not transposed to the film there yeah. are wholly invented elements of the film and I, now i kick myself that i didn't press ray about that like did that come from nigel's screenplay did did jan reed introduce that or was that entirely ray's work because ray very famously would do extensive pre-production artwork um to sell mm -hmm a studio like Columbia Studios on bankrolling this venture. So it could be that Ray was the one who concocted this entire construct of the selenite hive and the specificity of crystals being so integral to the ecology of the hive. Um, that is not in the H.G. Wells novel, but it's very consistent with the Martian culture, the fragments we see of it in Quatermass in the Pit. And in fact, I look at the design of the Martians in the BBC uh, Rudolf Cartier production of Quatermass in the Pit. And if those aren't a blueprint for what the Selenites ended up looking like, I'm blind. <laughs> Indeed, yeah. yeah no, I'd, I wonder, and I'd, there will be copies, I imagine, of uh, the script in Nigel Leon Archive. Uh, so maybe he won't have having to see if we can ever go to that. So if, I'd also like to see what his script looked like before Reed. Um, because clearly he he was chosen as the he talks about no real preamble he just got a he just got a uh, an invitation from um, from Charles Schneer, right. uh, which was just because as he saw it he was uh, he was a sci-fi guy and he was known as an adapter, uh, so you know he was it was he was yeah he, he had already done the entertainer. I mean, it had, wasn't just science fiction genre film. He was a no, no, no. Well, he started uh, out. I mean, you know, Wuthering Heights for the BBC. He was BBC yeah. staff writer, and like, you know, that yeah. the, the, the start off was plenty. And for a producer like Schneer, I'm sure mm. the credentials of um, didn't he also adapt? Was it Look Back in Anger that he Look did? Back the in anger. Anger. Look Back yeah. in Anger. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, uh, so 1984, that, of course. You say again? 1984 for the BBC. On television, right. Yeah, and I don't, think Schneer, or, I don't think Schneer yeah. or Columbia Studios would have put Matt Caché in that. I was yeah. trying to think of what theatrical films um, Neil had, had a, a hand in, and I'm thinking of The Entertainer and uh, Look Back in Anger, mm -hmm. where Schneer could go to Columbia. You know, he's got to convince Columbia to pony up the budget for this film. This was the uh, set of credentials that would have carried some weight at, at as conservative as a studio as Columbia was at that time. They yeah. were a very conservative motion picture studio. Um, right. It's almost a miracle that they were the studio that you know picked up Easy Rider. <laughs> yes, <laughs> later on, much. you know, it's like what you know. Uh, that wasn't what I think. Of. I think of their seventies output. Yeah, yeah. Okay, that was Columbia was the one that made yeah. the fortune and opened the door to the counterculture on the heels of MGM mm. picking up blow up. Yes. Um, but anyway, uh, and Jan Reed, of course, had worked with Schneer and Harry Haas and, yeah. you know, Jason and the Argonauts, yeah. and I believe doing some script doctor work on some of their earlier co-productions. Um, so... Yeah, and that's, a, and, and that's clearly sort of added. There's, there's a, to make it sort of more family friendly, to make it, you know, a bit to, to you know, to make to get this, to think the right. So yeah. this is, this is not, this is a, this is a family film. This is not a purely adult film. People like a nine-year-old Stephen Bissett, or I think it's Kim Newman's first experience yep. as, 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 as well, uh, to fall in love with cinema, um, and you know, because the films of Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea, uh, you know, the, it came from beneath. Uh, maybe not again for me to see, but the time machine, they had to have family friendly elements to it as all well. Well, you've got to remember 1964, all films were family films. Yeah. Uh, there was no rating. You folks had a rating system. Mm -hmm. You had an X rating. You also yeah. had earlier the H rating, you know, from the 30s to, I think, mm. what, early 50s. Um, America had nothing like that. Every film was essentially family friendly. It was very rare. We were only beginning to come into the era of Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, where they would tag a film with a mature audience, uh, uh, not even a label. It would just sort of be on the poster somewhere, suggested for mature audience. Um, but it was very rare. And it really had started with films like Suddenly Last Summer. Tennessee Williams was the troublemaker there, you know. But we were, is, I don't, is I don't this sort of a, sorry, is this sort of a, sort of a, a reaction to sort of the pre-code? Um, where, where, where anything goes now, now to get a film made, everything must be suitable for a nine-year-old to watch it. With. In 1964, yeah, 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 pretty much every film mm -hmm. was, and we were only, we hadn't yet, you know, that was already beginning to change. Um, you know, a, a film like Cornell Wilde's The Naked Prey was a much bigger hit than First Men in the Moon. We were already entering a phase where uh, a sizable portion of the preteen audience was gravitating away from mm. Tarzan's Three Challenges toward a film like The Naked Prey, which the title alone indicated, whoa, you know. <laughs> and I, I think of that one just because I think that was within a year of First Man in the Moon. And that was a rough movie. I mean, I, my dad took me to see it, you know. That was seeing elephants being butchered on screen. That was men being wow. baked alive in clay pots over yeah, a fire. Yeah. And that was Cornell Wilde being stripped and chased by warriors uh, in a life and death uh, variation on the most dangerous game. That was a rough movie in 1964-65. So First Men in the Moon was, we're already beginning to see Ray and Schneer struggle with the changing mores of the time. And I think reaching out to Nigel Neal was probably a life raft. Like, oh, Neal will bring us up to 
you know, a more adult threshold. And then you're probably right, John. They probably then hired Jan Beer to say, could you? <laughs> yeah, make this a bit more. Yeah, because yeah. um, Nigel Neal, with his, his, usual, his, his customary use of tact, uh, said it wasn't quite what he would have done. Uh, I yeah, doubt he would have had. No. I, I mean, I'd be curious whether I'm thinking of the touches in the film and Howard, John, maybe you can think of others like I, I if you get your hands on the Nigel Neal script, his draft, I'm willing to bet Cavour doesn't pause the action to shoo the geese out of the greenhouse. No, right? no, I, no, I, 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 I don't, one, I don't think that would, uh, Lionel Jeffries would have been really where he saw that character uh, being, be, being cast. Well, yeah. don't forget, I mean, prior to that, people think now Lionel Jeffries, oh, ha ha, you know, his, his comedic uh, role. I had seen him in the Scarlet Blade uh, right before The First Man in the Moon, where he is a sadistic, character he's he's a military leader it's a hammer film the scarlet blade mm -hmm. is one of their costume swashbucklers right okay. and uh lionel jeffries is like in the cold-blooded range like maybe one notch below michael uh, you know below vincent price and michael reeves's conqueror worm so jeffries was you know a very skilled performer um and i wonder if uh, harry hussen loved jeffries playing cavor I mean, Ray said to me point blank, he was born to play that role. Um, but Jeffries, as we knew him as an actor, you know, even at, as a nine-year-old kid, I mean, I had just seen him play a really cruel, evil villain and completely believable in that role. Um, and prior to that, I probably saw him as, he was one of the grave robbers in The Revenge of Frankenstein. It's him and Michael Ripper yes, that are is. robbing right. the grave. Yeah, right. yeah, you're fine, yeah. <laughs> you know, fine. and he's also, it was only later in life that I finally got to see The Creeping Unknown, which was the title for the Quatermass experiment here in America. And he's one of the scientists on Quatermass, yes, or one of the badgering government officials, I yeah. think, who Quatermass has to put up with, you know. So Jeffrey's, you know, we tend to associate him today with films like the Magni those magnificent men in their flying machines and you know like a terry thomas type character yeah, yeah. Um, but in 1964 we didn't know who how he was going to play that you know um, nevertheless cavour in the film is much softer possibly because oh, yeah. of Jack Reed, than he is in the book indeed yes. both both characters are uh i th think uh, bedford is although they make sort of a a thing Bedford. about Bedford being, being bankrupt. They go, I mean, he, he's sort of like, oh, it's a jolly, I'm, my, my creditors are, are in um, are in on me. Whereas in the book, it's like, I'm, I'm bankrupt. I've got nothing. I'm right. And I'm seizing in this in, 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 in a far more, I think, aggressive way about how he pushes himself onto, onto Cavour. Uh, right. Cavour but himself unlike, is a twist. But unlike the book, he's also willing to completely fuck over his fiance and leave her holding the bag. Well, let's yeah. talk about the fact that he's going to head for the moon yeah. and let her deal with the authorities over. Also, let's talk about the fact that one of the obvious differences is there is no female character in, in right, the book exactly. that, that they exactly. introduce. I mean, I'm guessing that's also slightly introduced for the American market uh, in terms of casting. Any market, really. Uh, yeah, I with your, I'm with you, Howard. I'm trying to think. I mean, British films tended to always have a female uh, co-lead at that time as well. well yeah, maybe I'm talking more of that, that choosing sort of Martha. Martha oh, right, sorry, right. Uh, Martha Hire, uh, right. In terms of Amer an, an American, right. And her character, we're told in the film, she's from Boston. I think that's yes, how we yes, we are. Yeah, but she's known as like a, a Western, isn't she? Or like. Well, Martha, Martha Heyer had done Westerns, adventure yeah. films. You know, she was one of those actresses 
in the late 50s who would have been under contract to an outfit like Universal International, but by the early 60s, you know, that studio system had already disbanded. Um, she gives a pretty terrific performance in First Men of the Moon. And her character, I have to say, if that was imposed on Neil, and I'd be curious to know, is that Jan Reed, you know, orchestrating that, or was that something Nigel had already done? Because she's actually very integrally folded into the narrative. It makes you accept why she ends up in the um, in the moon bell, um, and um, and it, it stops it from just being a remake of the creature of the abominable snowman of the Himalayas, right? Right. Bedford is pretty much the Forrest Tucker character yeah. from Abominable Snowman of the Himalayas. And Cavor is very much the Peter Cushing character from The Creature, from Nigel Neal's The Creature, right? So once again, it's that struggle between uh, a rational scientist who is exploring and hoping to find this other species. Um, and once there's even a hint of contact, wants to communicate with them. And Bedford becomes, is sort of the equivalent of the brash, you know, adventurer who doesn't give a shit about the communication. Let's bring one of these back with us or let's get out of here with our skin is really where Bedford's at at that yeah. point. Um, but it's very interesting to me that, you know, I, I think there are parallels between Nigel Neal's um, uh, The Creature, which I've only seen via the Hammer film. Um, I don't think a telescene exists of the BBC production. I think it's lost. Uh, no, it was, yeah like, yeah, like the others, it was live, and I don't think there's a, yeah. there's, and, some, uh, there's but, some photographs, but that's, that's it. But, but he did work with uh, Val Guest on the adaptation for the film, and I, it, to me, it's interesting to compare the dynamic between, very different characters, very different performances, but the dynamic between Peter Cushing and Forrest Tucker is not that different from where Lionel Jeffries and Edward Judd end up going in First Men of the Moon, right? Right down to yeah. wrestling with yeah. a rifle at one point. Right, mm. which happens in a cave, you know, in the Himalayas, in in the creature, uh, aka Abominable Snowman, and happens uh, on the steps of the visitation with the Grand Lunar in the First Men in the Moon of the characters wrestling with a rifle. But a lot of that, and not those, not those spectacles, because for obvious reason, Neil takes. I mean, the entire third act of the, of the book is sort of reordered because you know it's it's a flat. Right. Uh, Bedford gets away, but then gets a uh, we hear a message from Cavour that he's like a found footage film. Right, right. You know, we get found footage via via a Marconi scope or <laughs> trying to get electrical electrical signals. But he explains, you know, how he's how he survives up to the point where you don't know what happens to him after he's met the, the grand, you know, or the, the great lunar in the, the great in, 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 the, in the book. But you know. A lot of that struggle is still in the book. It's it's, oh, it it's, it's, it's it in, yeah, and that's why I think that of of the, as much as we have covered how hugely influential Nigel Neal has been to twentieth century culture and beyond. H. Um, G. Wells is probably the single biggest influence. There are no one has it one. H. G. Wells is probably the single biggest influence. I mean, when I first saw the film, and I thought. There's the scene. There's a line about Bedford having, you know, he's, you know, made a, uh, he's, he's, bought, he's, he's got money tied up in boots to sell to the army, which he can right. when he hears, when he hears of Cavarite, um, <laughs> as well. To the scene where the three workmen are all arguing about that's not my job as sort of like an as like a, a, an amusement to, to industrial relations in the working in the British working classes. And I've watched that and gone, 
there, there's Neil having some fun. Went yeah. back and read the book. It's all in there. It's in the book. It's yeah. in the book. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and well, so, and, yeah, and yeah. Wells was very much concerned with those same issues. Indeed, he was. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And fundamentally, I think one thing you take from from the creature, one thing you take from in, in different ways here, but Quatermass experiment. Well, actually, all the Quatermass stories in, in in different ways is the nature of humanity. Yeah. Uh, and the yes. role humanity plays in not only in um, in progress, but in the things it does badly when compared to other creatures. And, you know, uh, the creature that lived before man in, in the creature of the abominable snowmen uh, then shows man to be as to more primitive than it thinks. Well, and also look at, look at the corresponding, I agree with you totally. In fact, um, if you read any of H.G. Wells' surviving writings about what disdain he held for the films being made from his novels, it sounds a lot like Nigel Neal talking about the adaptations. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I think there may be more overlap between them as uh... that's 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 very that, that, that's very good to know. But yes, all that is all that of, of, of addressing the very nature of, huma of humanity, which Neil is so so good at. But this would seem to be the thing. And indeed, Neil's twist at the end in basically everyone's dead because of a common cold is nicked wholesale from War of the Worlds. Yes. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And had become, you know, a pretty standard trope in science yeah. fiction by that point in time. Yep. Yeah. Doctor Who it, nicked that as well. Once. It's funny you mentioned found footage because in all the writing, and, and I know there's a documentary being made right now about found footage horror in science fiction, nobody ever mentions the 1964 First Man on the Moon, which no. concludes with terrific use of found footage where the astronauts are fleeing the crumbling remnants of the Selenite civilization, including a couple of sets we recognize from earlier in the film, yeah. you know, when Bedford and Cavour were there. Um, and it's very ingenious use of uh, how television functioned in the 60s. Yeah, I mean, you've got to, yeah. you've, yeah. you've got to sell, you've got to sell the fact we've got a, someone's got a television camera set up or film camera Well, yeah, you've got, you're right. It, does, it always it. begs that question, like, who well, is... Who, who, who also, who's that? narrating? Who's narrating? It's, by the way, the voice, although not credited, the voice appears to be Valentine Dial. Dial. Yeah. The man really? in black. Yeah, the man in black. The, the Black Guardian. Wow. The you know, I, also, I also recently read that Lionel Jeffries did the Grand Lunar's voice. Yes, he did. Yeah. And had to, had to talk, talk to himself. But my favourite piece of um, emergency, or actually... My piece of piece of casting, recasting in that is the bailiff from the start, uh, which oh, is Peter. Which is Peter, Peter do you know this story? Yeah. Oh yeah. It's Peter yeah Peter it wasn't Finch. meant. To, it wasn't meant to be Peter Finch. It was meant to be Willie Rushton. Who yeah, was, and uh, he was yeah. available. And yeah, he got available. Ill he was he because was, he was because he was making pumpkin eat. He's making the pumpkin eater next door. A story of <laughs> the story about um, Harold Pinter and um, right, right. Pinter Mortimer oh. marriage. Uh, oh, and he no. was like, there's no budget for this, but Jeffries knew him and just said, uh, could you just come in and do this one scene? And they wrote his lines on the, on the bailiff's friend. And, and he's gave, perfect. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, and um, it is a nod to his, to his, um, to him playing Oscar Wilde. He calls the policeman Bosey. That's right. That's yeah. right. That's, that's, that's the trials, the trials of Oscar. Trial, trial of Oscar, trials of Oscar Wilde. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, that was, that was, he was just brought in. Absolutely, and there's loads of people that aren't credited. That's Eric Chitty, constant in British TV, the sixties and seventies. Is one is one of the foremen, and like there's only about eight people credited in the, in the entire thing. So yeah, and there's of a, one of parts. one of the uh, one of the diplomats is a, the character actor who appeared in tons of Hammer films. He, mm. he was the 
he was the Egyptian in the mummy who was controlling Karas. He was, uh, he was in the camp on Blood Island. He was, you know, um, I'm forgetting the name of the actor, but very familiar face uh, playing one of the diplomats. Mr. Cavill, I simply must get this straight. I... I'm not in a position... Uh, this, you see, Kate, uh, Kate, I couldn't possibly send you Cherry Cottage because... What is this stuff? What is this stuff? That's cover eyes. That's cover eyes. Nicely on temperature. Nicely on temperature. Uh, um, Mr. Cavill, mm -hmm. uh, if you would, mm -hmm. kindly tell me exactly what it is you're trying to do in a simple language, if you don't mind, because you see, I'm not a scientist. That is, of course, if it isn't a secret. It is a secret. It is a secret. Uh, would you, um, would you tell me? Yes, I will tell you. I will tell you. I'll explain. I'll explain. Now, you know that you can use screens like this to cut off light and heat. By the same token, you can cut off Marconi's wireless rays with sheets of lead. But nothing up to now will cut off the force of gravity. Oh, gravity, yes, of course. The, the pull of the Earth, what holds us on the ground. Yes, that's right. That's right. Now, what I'm experimenting with is a sort of coating, or rather a metallic paste, which will, in point of fact, cut off the force of gravity. You know, another interesting thing to me in revisiting uh, First Man in the Moon is I had just rewatched uh, Quatermass 2. Fair and there's a Val lot Gaston. of... Right, and it made me realize, oh, I wonder how much of that regimented, you know, uh, the the alien possessed workmen become like a hive you know they're they're a colony mind and it made me wonder if that was something that neil had extrapolated from reading wells and here he has yeah. the opportunity to realize that more fully where we're simply it's no longer a threat to us as humanity it's just how this culture operates and it's this very smoothly functioning based on ants and bees you know, ant colonies, beehives, um, culture. And it's very close to how the workmen are portrayed in Quatermass 2, both the teleplay and the Val Guest, Nigel Neal Hammer film adaptation. Um, they're threatening in a different way in First Men in the Moon. Uh, but it's amazing how even-handed the film is about the Selenites. You know, I, it is, and I'm just thinking of them. It's uh, this is probably more again more in the book that it comes than because just because it has longer to to to, to breathe right. it doesn't in the the, the quite effective shall we, where uh, Jeffries is talking to is talking to. But um, the idea that you know if you have to explain democracy to people that doesn't it doesn't always sound great. Um, <laughs> yeah. So yeah, when you, or you, you to explain human conflict, that yeah, bit yeah. when Lionel Jeffries explains human conflict, it gets into a terrible mess. Yeah, and, like, um, and then you explain, but ev everyone has a say. Yeah, that's well, what if they're stupid? Is basically what you're saying to yeah. the problem with it as well. Yeah, um, and, and we're both seeing on both sides of the Atlantic right oh, now. Oh yeah, that can take us. You know, oh, so yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
but then every time you try it, would try a benevolent autocracy, something's going to go wrong. So yeah, that doesn't pan out either. No, yeah, no, it's no. just not perfect. Um, no, but uh, but again, these are these these the, the, these are themes that, that Neil takes on very well. But here they are, I think, already laid out by 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 by, by Wells. Um, Wells, anyway, takes it, Wells takes it. Wells takes it further too, where he actually gets into the cell. the The film touches on it in the visual difference we between. Um, let's call them the selenite scientist class mm -hmm. and the selenite worker class have very striking physiological differences, right? Yep. Yes. And it's enhanced with that valley of the uncanny touch that you mentioned, John, of the uh, scientist selenites are, are realized with stop motion animation. Mm -hmm. The worker selenites are live action in costumes. Yeah, um, yeah, right, and they work wonderfully. I, yeah, yeah. you know, but yeah, we could say there's like that. There's one shot where the the, the scientist is on the, the recording stuff with uh, and then the, and then the background, you just see a row of the workers walking right. past. It's a lovely in-depth shot. Oh, it's amazing, yeah, yeah, and yeah. that is uh, carried further by Wells in the novel. Mm. There are there are uh, further differences anatomically between certain working classes of the selenite hive. And they touched on that in that 2010 BBC First Men in the Moon, the one that Philip Jackson um, directed that had, yeah. um, what was it? I think Rory Kinnear and uh, Mark Gattis. Mark Gattis, yeah, yeah. Right. Um, but it was even, it's, it's most fully realized in a film adaptation that Brett Piper did of First Men in the Moon that just came out about two years ago. Um, he did a short puppet animated version of First Men in the Moon. It's about 15 minutes, 12, 12 to 15 minutes long. It's a wonderfully tight uh, condensation adaptation of the novel. And it's from the novel, not the, not the Nigel Neal, um, uh, Charles Schneer, Harry Hassan, Nathan Juran film. I'll mention everybody. Um, <laughs> not but, the film, um, yeah. But what Brett Piper does is because he's working entirely on his own, mm. uh, under his own budget and everything, he creates five or six different stop motion selenite uh, beings. So he fully fleshes out that suggestion in Wells's novel that as with certain species of ants, you wouldn't even be able to tell that the drones are from the same species as uh, the modified anatomies that hold the honey in the hive for feeding purposes because they're, they're anatomically so different. And Brett Piper's stop motion animation version, I highly recommend it. It's on the um, it's on the DVD release of Outpost Earth, which is one of Brett Piper's uh, science fiction, low budget science fiction uh, films. And one of the bonus features is his First Men in the Moon, and it's terrific. I mean, it's really it's worth the price of admission right there. Um, we could put up a link to, to that. There you go. Yeah, and uh, yeah. but Harry Hawson touched on that. You know, the difference between. Yeah. The worker class, the scientists, and of course the Grand Lunar. We only glimpse the silhouette of the Grand Lunar mm -hmm. behind that crystalline shield uh, that it sits behind. Um, really wonderful stuff. But I know when we when we spoke and we were first setting this up uh, that you brought to the attention that this is probably, or you're saying it, it definitely is. If we can, unless we can think of any others, uh, we'll put this out to, to listeners as well. This is the first fully realized alien culture. I think it's the first, and, and it, this isn't my original thought. This was actually okay. something that my friend uh, Danny Kubert pointed out to me. Uh, Danny Kubert is one of the sons of Joe Kubert, my mentor, yeah. the cartoonist Joe Kubert, who 
best known for Sergeant Rock and Tarzan adaptation and so on. And uh, Danny and I were quite close friends for a number of years. And it was Danny who pointed out to me one day, I think it had just been on TV, which is why we were talking about it. And he's, um, and it, and it had to have been around 1980 because Alien had come out right around that time. And Alien came out here in the US in 79. And Danny was the one who said to me, you know, First Man of the Moon was the first movie that really, and since then, you know, since 1980, I've been pondering that. And I think Danny Kubert is dead right. I cannot think of a single science fiction film prior to First Man in the Moon that uh, presented visually uh, such a cohesive invented ecology for an alien culture. Um, and it's, it's fascinating to me how fully it incorporated crystals a number of years before the whole new age movement where crystals and crystal mm -hmm. healing was suddenly this key thing. Um, so, so just to, just to clarify on that point, every film before that, although it can show an alien world, is just like, you know, Forbidden Planet shows, but it's essentially backdrop. It's just- It's, it's not it's just backdrop. It's also not cohesive, John, right? Okay. Like in, uh, let's use Forbidden Planet, which you mentioned, right? The alien landscape that the ship lands on is very different from that little, you know, pool in the jungle that they have the little swimming scene <laughs> around. And it has nothing to do with the Krell technology that we get a couple of evocative glimpses of. There's nothing that integrates all those uh, disparate elements into a cohesive, believable environment in and of itself. The, the alien even, environment only really exists in as much as it exists at all as elements to support the plot. So as opposed to First Men and the Moon, which I think exists, and then the film explores that. And you can imagine the alien environment in First Men on the Moon sort of going on without the movie happening. Yes, but exactly. You, you can't it's, if it's planet, yeah, yeah. Exactly, yeah. And, and you do get the feeling of stepping into a pre-existing universe that yeah. you're then ejected from when that part of the narrative ends and that we then see the complete implosion of at the end of the film. Um, you know, I can think of science fiction films like This Island Earth, right? The, the oh, yes. Universal International This Island Earth. But there was an approach that was taken that goes back to um, Georges Méliès films, you know, like yeah. A Trip to the Moon, you know, the precursor to First Men in the Moon, the film. Um, Directly goes, referenced in, in Wells's, Wells's book as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I, yeah. The only example I could think of prior to First Men in the Moon is how believably Skull Island was presented in the 1933 King Kong. You really get the sense yeah. of uh, an environment that is apart from any kind of, it doesn't look like Africa, it doesn't look or feel like South America, it doesn't look or feel like Asia. It has enough invented elements that it feels like a believable, cohesive, separate environment, right down to Kong's passage up into his cave. And we finally get to see, you know, Kong's lair. But that, that functions on a different level than First Men in the Moon, where, um, and my argument uh, in, in the conversation you and I had, John, and the email exchange is, I can't even think of a genre film that used moving the camera through an invented environment to tell the story as comprehensively as First Men in the Moon did until the Gary Sherman uh, film Deathline, the British film Deathline, which I believe was 1972, I think. Yeah. Um, 
And in that one, it's just presenting visually this very constricted environment, you know, this underground lair where generations of buried workers have been inbreeding and we're down to the last man, the last survivor. And, and Gary Sherman doesn't, there's no point in the film where a character stops and walks us through this environment. The camera brings it to it. Um, it opens with that massive little one three sixty shot, doesn't it? Almost yeah. of the of the of the of the environment. But as I said at the time, I think I didn't get that, and that might be because I went always knowing it's a film about a man who lives in the underground and little people. So, I'm. It's the closest we've ever seen to Sonny Bean in a film, right? That idea yeah. of this yeah. abattoir environment mm. <laughs> where people aren't just living in squalor they actually live they shit where they eat pardon my french you know an american phrase i don't know if there's anything comparable in the uk you don't shit where you eat is an old saying over here um yeah. sonny bean and his clan clearly did um <laughs> and uh but to get back to first man the moon i mean we're given kind of a tour with cavor being our uh our sort of narrator you know he's the voice who when, they're, when he and uh, Martha Heyer are walking up the stairs and there's that huge crystalline form yep. and Cavour says, perpetual motion, what a brilliant, you know. Mm. And, but, mm. he st but it's still the visual narrative that's presenting us this, this realm. Nobody talks about, you know, the oversized mushrooms. Nobody talks about how integral the crystal designs are in every aspect of the technology. It's right. simply shown to us and it makes organic sense with the selenites as these ant-like, bee-like creatures. You know, those kind of organic shapes, the crystals, the hexagons, the even the bubbling, you know, tubes of colored liquid uh, make a kind of organic sense with an insect spawned technology. You know, you, you can almost believe that, you know, they might have secreted these things from their bodies at some point, or there might be some Selenite yeah. we don't see that's capable of doing that. So. And, and I mean, the bubbling tubes are great. You get Lionel Jeffries, they're walking through these blown up bubbling tubes um, with, with the green screen, blue screen, green screen, whatever. And um, he's like, it's an oxygen processing plant. And that's all you need to suddenly explain yeah. why there's air yeah. under the surface of the moon. And, you know, and, and there's, and, it, and it's visually the sort of thing that doesn't need to be explained weirdly you're right howard and it doesn't need to be explained to the point that at the end of the film when we're seeing the decay of the selenite civilization on the tv screen yeah there's one shot of one of the crater cones collapsing and you see that that those facets are composed of actual cone shapes just like the faceted eyes of an insect. Yeah. And, and that's the kind of thinking I'd never seen in a film before. And I, I didn't see again until H.R. Giger designed the whole of Alien. And, and we again have a visual artist, H.R. Giger, working on the level that Ray Harryhausen did on First Men in the Moon, um, where you have a visual artist composing this purely visual narrative component, which is the environment you're moving through. Prior to that, almost every science fiction film is like this hodgepodge. You know, it's sort of like their template isn't H.G. Wells, the way it was for Nigel Neal, 
because Wells was always very cohesive with those invented environments. The way that Wells describes the Morlock culture in the novel, The Time Machine, yeah. is not that kind of yeah. random presentation we see in the George Powell film. Wonderful as that film is, you know, there's nothing that in that that makes you go, oh, that machinery looks like the Morlocks, you know, organically are of that environment. <clears throat> it looks like what it is, a, a piece of production design. Yeah. Whereas in First Man of the Moon, that is kind of an alien mind at work right there. And it's that creative aspect of, and I wonder how much Neil had to do with it because it's very consistent with what the glimpse were given of Quatermass in the Pits, Martian environment. Stuck. I can't move. You'll be all right, Mrs. Edmund. We'll stop accelerating at any moment now. Where are we? What's happening? Just as I predicted. Shot into space with the speed of a bullet. I'll put Magnus in your shoes. Please. Oh, I think I'm going to be sick. Well, hold on to the hand grips, woman. You had no right to take me. I only came to have it out with Mr. Bedford. We had no choice, did we, Mrs. Bedford? Please stop calling me Mrs. Bedford. We're not married. We're not likely to be, ever. Not married. Kindly leave the room. The... But I completely get that it, as, as Neil creates the Martian environment in, in, in the BBC pit, um, how he refers to um, the Cellulite's environment may inform the design decision but the crystalline stuff um when you think of that and then you think of hammer's pit which is three years after this yeah and particularly when you see them in the the scene where they in the hammer pit they open the spaceship and the 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 mm. the, the martian corpses are in a crystalline structure exactly and, and that, that would seem to be taken and indeed is it also and that looks directly influenced by this, which in turn may have been influenced by, by, Neil's, um, by Neil's description. But the look of the hammer pit, the Martian environment that we see within the spaceship, looks very much like, like, like this. So I think while Neil might be uh, similarly influencing through similar description of how, he's, of how he envisages it, the look of uh, the hammer pit may be taken from from, from, from the art direction, I think. Right, of the, right. Of the, of the, of the, although, of although in the Rudolf Cartier, Nigel Neal, Quatermass in the Pit, the serial, you know, there's those glass-like crystalline structures that begin to collapse as soon as the air gets into the chamber. But they're, you're right, well, it's not as vividly... No, uh, and they're not, they're not necessarily crystalline. I think that right. you see them more as like drapes. Almost, yeah, exactly. Of exactly. And then he's like, oh, this is... By the way, these are the controls, and you're right. like, the fuck. And like, in, the, in the way, that's that's pretty much what Colonel Green says. In, yeah, yeah, in and nice, it looks more like project. it looks more like webbing or something. Yeah, indeed, in indeed. The, but yeah, the, that's they're, they're, they're the, the whereas the the crystalline structure is there very definitely in that shot where you see, um, the, I think you see like four or five Martians in their pods, and that to me looks straight out of. You can well, see that coming from. from I would welcome if any of your listeners can suggest earlier models that I maybe. Yes, you don't. I so mean, there are some there are some gorgeously designed mm -hmm. uh, films from prior to First Man on the Moon. I'm thinking particularly of you know 20th Century Fox production of, of Journey to the Center of the Earth, which had, yeah. which had uh, Henry Levine was the director and it had glorious art direction and production design, but the differences between the levels of the Earth they were moving through 
was what was emphasized, not the cohesiveness. It was never a convincing ecology in and of itself, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. The Verne adventure is very much an adventure where you're moving through these very different, almost dimensional layers, right? And they end yeah. up in a crystalline chamber at one point, and then they end up in the, the part of the cavern where the giant mushrooms are, which leads out to the inner lake. You know, that's very much of, of uh, uh, that's, that's the kind of extrapolation that Edgar Rice Burroughs ran with after Verne in his writings, but you never had seen that cohesive an alien environment prior to First Man in the Moon. And, and again, I welcome being corrected. I would love mm. to be, and I can think of films like Invaders from Mars, the William Cameron Menzies yeah. film. And Menzies was a great filmmaker and art director and visual uh, artist. Um, that film messed me up when I was about six years old. Yeah, and it should really have, Howard. terrified me. <laughs> yep. But there's not really a believable organic no. you know, cohesiveness to that Martian culture. It's very cool. And, and there's certain textural things that resonate through, but it's nothing like what we see in First Men in the Moon. So um, anyway, I think that really sets the film above and apart. And I think it also um, uh, is probably one of the most fascinating things to me about this collision between Nigel Neal, you know, coming in in his prime and Ray, Ray Harry Hawson really in his prime. Um, and, and just the luck of the draw that they ended up working together on this film. But also also a whole team of people around Ray Harryhausen or with Ray Harryhausen sure. who had worked together. So you've got the Seventh Voyage of Sinbad, which I think you mentioned earlier on. Yep. Um, and Nathan Duran, you know, and Schneer and Harryhausen have worked yep. together on Jason and the Argonauts a few years before. You've got Nathan Duran had worked on Jack the Giant Killer, which is yes. another touch, childhood touchstone Ed, of Ed, Edward Small, the producer, hired Duran because he so wanted to imitate the seventh voyage of Sinbad. Yeah. That he figured, well, if I can't get Harry Hawson, I'll hire the director. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I mean, I, I, I spent years thinking it was a Harry Hawson movie until yeah, yeah. Um, as an adult, you can you can see you can see how how it's not. Yeah. But yeah. It, it, it's very much. What do we sorry, What do we think of Nathan Jones? Because he's known as a technical director. He's not known as an actor's director. And um, no one who worked the production said he was. Sorry, none of the actors that worked on the production uh, said he was particularly um, uh, useful in terms of you know talking about character and that. He's interested in te in, in 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 the technical aspect, which is presumably why. What, what 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 he brings, but other than the film, I mean, like he did like Attack of the Fifty Foot Woman and so there's, there's, and he went back. I think by the end of the sixties, he was doing you know, uh, Journey to the Bottom of the Sea and uh, that, the Giants, Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea. Sorry, yeah, and he, I think he talks about Lost um, in Space. He did Lost in Space, yeah. In fact, actually, Owen Allen worked yeah. with Owen Allen. Fair enough. That, that, puts him, that puts him in. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Well, I just say he he finished. I think where he was happier doing stuff on television than, than on. Well, that puts him in the same school as you know directors like in the same generation as directors like Byron Haskin, right? Byron Haskin tended to work with George Powell. He directed War of the Worlds and Naked yeah. Jungle. Um, it puts him in the same school with Eugene Laurie, uh, the director mm -hmm. of Beasts from Twenty Thousand Fathoms, who was also an art director. Had originally worked like you know, with, with Jean Renoir and the Grand Illusion and with Charlie Chaplin. Um, I think it also puts him in the school with almost all of Harry Hawson's directors because Harry Hawson didn't 
Schneer and Harryhausen didn't want strong directors. Ray was in charge, you know? Um, Seinfeld. Well, I, I think they're terrific directors. And I think Cy Enfield is a terrific director. And probably one of the, I think that Cy Enfield and Don Chaffee with One Million Years BC are probably the two strongest directors that Harry Hassan was ever fortunate enough to work with. But Nathan Juran meshed with the team that you're talking about, Howard, right? Yeah. Schneer, Harry Hassan, their production team and their associates, that meshed, they worked well together. And part of it was uh, Duran, like Byron Haskin, who was a specialist in special effects, and like Eugene Lurie, who also being production design and art director understood special effects, they understood Harry Hassan's role. And they also were probably willing to concede to Harry Hassan's role in the way that uh, an auteur director would not have, right? Camera placement often had to have been determined by the model work. Camera placement would have to be determined, particularly with a production like First Man on the Moon, where Ray was struggling with Panavision, with the camera setup could not vary from what the plate elements were going to be that Ray had to, you know, fold together <laughs> in his lab and in his, you know, little, little animation studio. Um, Nathan Duran was the kind of director who could handle a half hour to 40 minutes of setup with the actors and performers and handle, you know, the bulk of the film where it's really Ray who's determining camera placement, what we're gonna see on the screen. Like yeah, a giant I, I, moon cow caterpillar. Yeah, yeah. well, I, I think the actors talk about like, he was more useful to come into them and say, this is what you're looking at. This is the eye line. go, yeah. So um, that was probably and, more, um, but we haven't mentioned also Wilfred Cooper who shot. Oh God, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and, and we'll as I mentioned earlier, there's, there's a depth of field that they use on um, where you've got the model shots talking to the character in the in the, in the midground, and then the the uh, the creatures in the background. There's a there's the depth when it's sitting there going up the stairs as well. That multi-layered stuff, it's really 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 well shot. Yeah, and it's also it also carries through certain uh, dimensional aspects that Wilkie Cooper, being the cinematographer, just so that for the listeners who might not have made that leap. Um, it matches the use of, use of depth and layering in the earlier scenes in the casual environment that you know Bedford and Kate live in and Cavour's lab and the whole way they set up things like the yard and where the greenhouse is, which becomes critical when there's the explosions in the house and in the lab. Cooper knew how to do all that stuff. Um, mm. Did Wilkie Cooper shoot uh one million years bc as well he did yes i think he did did right. did, um, did seven void of Sinbad. right so and that's i mean i'm i was mysterious trying to think Island. of another and mysterious sign i was trying Brilliant. to think of another reference point where you can see that cooper as a cinematographer had a really diverse palette i mean yeah. those films are completely unlike one another visually mm. um, and they have a very specific feel there's a storybook feel to Seventh Voyage of Sinbad and Mysterious Island, different yeah. types of storybooks, but it's a storybook yeah. feel. First Man on the Moon has a completely different visual texture to it. And One Million Years BC was a surprisingly primal looking and feeling movie when it came out in 1967. That probably sounds silly today in 2021, but, um, you know, well, visually, I mean, no, no. that was... Yeah, it, 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 it does. And I think the reason, like, um, 
Mysterious Island's Jules Verne, isn't it? And there's a, I think yeah. there's an e- there's an easier ride of a rip roaring adventure you can you can get to with with Jules Verne, and with Wells you've got to put it through a couple of filters to get to get the the, the, the I think which is where the scripts levels right. come from. But, from but I also think animated. with Wells, Harry Hawson had no crutch to fall back on. Right? He couldn't pull up. Uh, uh, Ray was a huge fan of Gustave de Ray. He had a complete collection in his home of first edition. Gustave Doré illustrated volumes of every book Doré illustrated. And, and the one time Ray lit up during our conversation is when um, he reached behind his couch <laughs> and he pulled up these uh, Byron Crabe uh, drawings from King Kong, from the 1933 mm. King Kong. And it was the old charcoal drawings that some of we've seen reproduced in books and so on. And you know, I was knocked out by them and, and he was enjoying showing them off. And there was one composition with the log, Kong with the log. And I went, God, that is so much like the lighting of Gustav de Ray. And it was, that was the point where if, there were, if I ever got close to you know, inspiring Ray in conversation, he lit up at that point and he said, come with me. And he took me down into their downstairs where he had this huge wooden cabinet with doors he opened and he, had like one of those Bible-like um, book holders, you know, that, uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> and he started putting out the books and opening them up and showing them to me. Like this was the point where we were finally talking artist to artist and mm-hmm. Ray wanted to make sure I understood and could see how important Doré was to him. I think First Men in the Moon pulled him out of that comfort zone, right? Yeah. You think back yeah, yeah, to Mysterious Island and he's still pulling, mm-hmm. you know, they walk across the log at one point and that's yeah. his nod to, not just King Kong, but Gustav's Doré illustration for Roland. But at First Man on the Moon, he had to wholly create that visual world. Um, And and I think that's also part of what makes it special because he he was more than up to the challenge. It's it's interesting that that you have that visual world that Nigel Neal created and you sort of see, you can can see the joints between that. And I I think we mentioned this before, Jan Reed's script, because Jan Reed is also part of that whole Schneer Harryhausen kind of thing um didn't Jan, Jan Reed scripted Jason and the Argonauts she did yeah yes yeah she yeah. did um and she took a lot of heat for it too I remember the Time magazine their review was entitled more bull than bullfinch <laughs> but Jan Reed had mastered what Ray and Charles Schneer needed yeah was you yeah. know how do Which how is- do we synth- synthesize these works were adapting for a contemporary audience circa, yeah. you know, 1962. Yeah, this is the script. This is the script that Neil's given us. Great, but just right. make it a bit more as uh, our style and just giving it to, to, to her. And she gets, you know, equal credit with, with Neil. Yeah, yeah. Not yeah. Forget. She's got script doctoring Neil, um, but she's making characterization, I think, uh, significantly different from what Neil would have put in that. But, I mean, I, we could be wrong, but I'd like to think Jan Reed is probably the voice that went, let's make Martha Hire into a character. You know, let's make Kate a character. Yeah, of, that's, know, that's, that's, that's worth checking. Or whatever. I, I mean, I, I wondered if, just say, look, you need, you need a female character in this as well. And, and you know, he'll, he'll put one in. Maybe, maybe job, not. You don't, know, you, don't, you don't know yet, but. I mean, uh, Quatermass in the Pit has one of his strongest female characters in one of his science fiction works. I mean. The character that Barbara Shelley plays in the Hammer film version is in the teleplay, and she's the character that ends up being hooked up to the device that 
allows the them to optic make encephal- the optic encephalograph. Yeah, right. I like to, like to just say oh, mind TV. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, so you know he and he, he wrote a lot of strong female characters during his uh, career. Um, but I yeah. again, if you ever get your hands on the scripts or the different drafts, um, it would be fascinating to see what the interplay and what the push me pull you. Yeah, it's particularly interesting. You sort of see there are things that are quintessentially Neil's sense of humor. He's really good at having like average English Joes doing lines in the background. They sort of like just throwing, just these throwaway sort of walk on characters. But but yet so so does Wells. There's a sequence yeah. in in the in the in the novel. Where uh, Bedford sort of can't before they before they leave, where Bedford can't handle it um, and just takes off and spends the night at a um, inn uh, outside Canterbury, and then just spends that evening having d- dinner and drinking and talking to the landlady, and you can see why it's cut because it, it's it has no bit on the on the on the main plot, but it's it's a lovely parallel with her worldview, which is she's yeah. barely been she's barely been to Canterbury. No, she's only outside and the parallel will you're only going to the moon it's not that far um and that's really really something neil will take certainly with the tiny characterization oh, so. to illustrate yeah. a bigger to illustrate the bigger picture and that's and there, yeah that's wells i mean it's like you know, as well it's, it's, it's really i mean we've talked we talk quite a lot in previous episodes about hg wells's influence on neil and neil's debt to wells and I think this is one of the many things, the, 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 the kind of comedy asides that Neil does, which don't work when he finally tries to write a comedy, but we've yet to do an episode. <laughs> let's, about let's, that. Not, let's not talk about <laughs> King Vic now. We'll, we'll, um, there will be time, there will be a time, place, time and place to talk about King Vic. Oh, I want to hear that conversation. Yeah, I want to hear that conversation. Um, <laughs> God. You know, it's interesting though, if we look at the film, the gaps that are still there. I mean, out of the three yeah. main characters, the most traveled of those three characters, the only character that we know has traveled much is Kate. And yet nothing is mentioned or made of that. I mean, she's no. moved from America to England and, you know, but we have no sense of, of Bedford or Cavour having been much of anywhere, you know? Um, and Bedford, one would suspect, had only traveled in order to pull scams in different mm. parts of the countryside. Yeah, we'd, I mean, Bedford, in both both film and book, Bed, Bedford's an arsehole. Um, and like, just, terrible, just, terrible just, guy. Yeah, he is. He is. Yeah, he's Hilariously still, he's, terrible. But he's the emotional heart of the film still. He's also yeah. perfectly cast, right? Edward Judd yeah, played Edward an Judd's, asshole yeah. in The Day the Earth Got Fire, right? He's a journalist. He's a yeah. complete asshole in Island of Terror, which is a film yes, I really yes, love. Yes, yes, you know? yeah, yeah. There's that moment in Island of Terror when he's standing behind the the female lead, and he's deciding whether he should kill her or not to to spare her, to mercy kill her before the silicates show up. And uh, and I know, saw that as an homage to Steinbeck. Oh yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I think you may be spot on there. But Judd That's was so on Brad. <laughs> Judd was so great playing these cads, you know, and and he's still likable in First Men in the Moon. Yeah, he, he is. He is. He is. Despite he the fact. reputation for actually being a cad on set for being a well, bit of a jerk, it came through. It came through. So yeah, um, uh, but it, but yeah, it's interesting that Kate has those. There's things about her character that you would think they would play off of. 
Um, I do love that don't. she gets a line where she does actually explain the difference between British and American currencies at one That's point. That's right. That's right. And that was probably inserted for the American audience. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Somebody at, you know, either Schneer or somebody at Columbia went, you're going to have to make this clear because they're just not going to get it, you know? Yeah. Um, That's $5,000. Yeah. But the film does a great job maintaining what, I, and again, I, I'm a colonial, but <laughs> the, the British elements feel quite genuine in that film. Oh yeah, yeah. they are. But yeah, it's it's, it's made it's made at Shepperton. It's it's written by Neil. You know, it's oh, it's, not, um, it's not Mary Poppins, which was like no. ow. You know, even when I was a kid, it was like ow. You know, <laughs> um, no. sorry, John, but I mentioned Mary Poppins. I love purpose. Mary Poppins. Yeah, it's fine. Yeah, I just if you're if if you're from London, that's just they, offense. That's they both, right. Dick Van Dick Van Sure, but they both face. have the floating chair scene. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, you know, but it has, it, it, you know, but that, that's that's as much a scene I think for the kids to make them laugh to make. Oh, here's a really easy illustration of what I'm talking about, right. and it's a bit whoa, it's magic, and that's that's fun. There's the, and yet the, I have to wonder where Mary Poppins' production fits into the timeline of First Men in the Moon's production, whether either film, and it's unlikely, was even aware that the other one had such a similar sequence conceptually. In it. That's not in the book. Cavour demonstrates Cavourite in a different yeah, way. Yeah, it doesn't. Uh, they're both 64, aren't they? They're, they're same both year. The same year. They're both shot in England. Yeah. They're both I think, shot. I, I think that must be a coincidence. I mean, the chair in Mary Poppins levitates for a completely different reason. Right. You laugh. And, you love to laugh yeah. and you levitate. And it's funny, you know. It is. It is. And but this is no this but this scene in, in Fortnite, it's done as a humorous aside. It does the job of explaining in a simple way yeah. what Cavourite is, but it's there for the it's something visually interesting for children as well to, to, to get to get hold of well, the slapstick when he falls through the table table as well not just There's, children it also made it clear to you know my non-science fiction reading dad how cabaret worked it's a yeah well as i say that was the, yeah. that's the function of the scene but it's done in, in such a way that it's fun like you know with the business with um i think it's eric chitty and general jeffries with the ladder right like, trying to get it through and always said you go that's you know that's purely you know that's that's pure that's um Ealing comedy, um, right, slightly right. Fu slightly fussy, panicky, uh, uh, yeah, British slaps, the British physical comedy of, of, right. of, that, of, right. that, of, of that, that time. But again, it's just it's illustrating. Here's an easy example to illustrate how Cav how Cavorite works while making the kids laugh as well. And, he, and in the end, he falls. Mm -hmm. He does a piece of and he falls through the table. And it's cleverly written in that Bedford immediately goes, "This is how I can sell the boots." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there's not even a breath taken before no, he's taking, oh, right. you can yeah, put yeah. this on this boots, is, you know? Here's, here's <laughs> literally the most amazing discovery in the world that's been made that's been made <laughs> in somewhere in Kent. Uh, here's how I can make money. I can put some boots. It's like, it's so tiny. It like, is, I can is. go to the fucking moon. No, I can, <laughs> I can put this on boots. Sell the boots? Yeah. And he has no redemption. No, he doesn't. No, he the lives, very he, last line of the film reveals that he is still... Yeah, a complete jerk. Yeah. And, he, and he outlives his partner as well. He's the only one left alive at the end. You yeah. 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 It is a great last line, too. It is oh, a great yeah. last line. It's threatening that you, do, that you really don't hate him in the way that you really should hate him. Um, <laughs> I, I, I agree. I agree. Yeah. It makes him, and you know, I did have a conversation with Ray once about why so many of his heroes were anti heroes. Sinbad's a pirate. Jason yeah. is going to go steal the Golden Fleece, right? 
He goes to Colchis and takes their most sacred artifact. And yet we're he's, with he's the... British, you know, like this, the imperialistic, <laughs> imperial, not really ones to, 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 to point to point fingers on the imperialistic front. Ah, but Ray is from Ray is American. He's from. Yes, Boston. that's true. Yes. Yeah, so right. So, you know, but, uh, you know, you, you could almost go through each one of his films and his hero is not a traditional, uh, you know, American studio film hero. They're all pretty much cads, pirates, thieves. Um, they are, but I think I think in in Sinbad and in Jason the Argonauts, we're dealing on classical. We're dealing some in classical tales um, of of daring do. But when morality wasn't quite uh, to be demonstrated as, as fairly as it is now, and also you know with slightly simplistic storylines of it's a quest. It, I just you know don't really I think agree. of the fact you don't really think of the fact that I'm also depriving you of this. The, the hero has a quest, and, the, and, the, and, the, and, the, and, the, and he completes the quest, regardless of the fact that MacGuffin is somebody else's property. So yeah, right, yeah. right. Or in Golden Voyage of Sinbad, you know, the magician, the evil magician, being played by Tom Baker, is actually the more honorable character. He is, yeah, it's he's just, absolutely he's the evil magician. So we, yeah. you know, we're against him. Hey, that that got that got him Doctor Who. Oh, that's right. Yeah, that's yes. right. Yes, he and did. he's great in it. He's great. Yes. Yeah. You've still, um, you? still got your copy of that, haven't you? I've still got your copy of that, Howard. Yes. Oh, you, you, you lent it to me nine years ago when I was in hospital. I, I, I did. Yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Howard, he could buy you a new Blu-ray of that. You know, I could do. It's however, Indicator's box set has just been has just sold out. Um, that was, oh, that's uh, handy. That's yeah. It, <laughs> <laughs> no, it's really unhandy because I was going to buy that and just give it back to Howard. It's, okay. it's, already, it's already sold out. But the, and I believe their Ray Harryhausen box set volume two has just sold out, which just oh, has which has yeah. the Blu-ray of First Spread of the Moon on it. Yes. Anyway, by the way, I have the Twilight Time edition of First Man of the Moon, which has a terrific uh, audio commentary track with Randall William Cook, who is a special effects stop motion animator, talking with Ray. Um, and it's a pretty interesting commentary because it's two stop motion animators uh, talking about the film. Mm. What's frustrating about their commentary is at the very moment where Randy Cook asks Ray about the design of the environment, somebody interrupts Ray and we never get his answer. It's the, it's the question that I posed to you guys earlier. You know, did that come from Nigel Neal? Or was yeah, that and it's the one Ray? thing you, you really and, Randy Cook actually asks him the question, and Ray gets interrupted, so we never get his answer. That's that's that's, frust <laughs> that's frustrating. You say men cling to different tongues and beliefs. Is there no one ruler? No, no. Every century, some despot tries, but up to now, no one succeeded. People like Hannibal, Julius Caesar, Napoleon. Does this not lead to confusion? Yes, it does. Worse. Starvation, hostility, even war. Tell me of war. Tell you of war. Oh, my goodness. Well, it usually starts with a whacking great explosion. Yeah. Uh, I also want to mention the other way I was introduced to Nigel Neal was mm -hmm. uh, after seeing First Man on the Moon. I went to our local library in Waterbury, Vermont, which was across the river, the Winooski River from where I live. Uh, I bicycled over there and I had the name written down because I had copied it down off the movie poster in front of the Capitol Theater. 
uh, one of those strange things. I, so, a so did, at nine years old, you identified the writer already and went, I want to know more of what he's written. That's it. And I wrote wow. down both names, Jan Reed and uh, Nigel Neal. And the librarian said, oh, we have something by Neil. And they had on a spinner rack of paperbacks that I never looked at because the paperbacks tended to be, you know, murder mysteries and oh, stuff that weren't of yeah, interest yeah. to a nine-year-old. Um, they had a copy of the Penguin edition of Quatermass in the Pit, the script. And I believe that was the first movie script I had ever read. Um, she let me take it out and I brought it home and it was very confusing read because I had to divine, how do I read this thing? Like, what am I reading here? Yeah, it's, um, um, I'd, I'd really like to read them as prose, but um, yeah. It was, was but case. that was my first direct yeah, yeah. exposure. That was the first time I actually read something by Neil. And so is that, an Ameri is that an American edition? Can you? Can no, I, no, can they're you? the Penguin editions. And that's the British, so that's the, it's the one that has like two and six on the front. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And yeah. And these were, uh, I presume either gifted to the library, mm. right? Because the, the these Penguin editions all came out in 1960. So I suspect somebody had donated it to the library, uh, yeah. but regardless, oh, I got to see it. Sorry, that's just reminded me of a, di a, a direct link of, of a Neil, but not Nigel Neil to both this and First Men of the Moon. Which is? The artist is Brian Neil, who was a, uh, Nigel's brother, who sculpted oh. under Harryhausen's design um, the alien world the, in the moon. So that's oh, my I'm... God. Well, there you go. Holy shit. Why were you holding out on this? Sorry, yeah. Oh. To be honest, I'd forgotten. And the, uh, that's the bit where we get to the miscellaneous section at the end and just go, oh, I didn't mention that. So then I put that in. But you remind, But you then I could take this. Bit so Brian Neal drew that cover? Brian Neal drew this as well, yeah. And Brian Neal worked as part of the production team on he's, First Man in the Moon? Brian Neal's an artist, he's a sculptor. Yes, yes. Uh, yes, and yes, he was he was part of the art direction team on, on First Man in the Moon. He sculpted, oh he sculpted this as well. He also did Quatermass 2. Yeah, I have that as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I've Absolutely. got that too, so. Yeah, I think as well. So yes, there's another direct link between. That's an incredibly direct link. In fact, that would indicate a possibility of conversation between the two brothers as work was being done on the film. They could, could have led have to, yeah. Read, wow. Well, boy, this is blowing my mind. You just you just made my my year, John. Good God. I'll call that <laughs> in as a favor at some point. Wow. Yeah, you can. That was <laughs> that's amazing. I've never read that anywhere. I've never read any reference to that either. I mean People tend to act as if, and I certainly didn't mean to come off in that way, but you know, people tend to act as if Ray was the be all and end all on every visual. It's like the way people talk about Walt Disney. You know, I have aunts and uncles that think Walt Disney actually drew all those animated cartoons. Um, you know, Ray was always working with with interlocking production teams and oh sure, yeah, yeah. he physically so didn't have time to sculpt every there single was no thing. Way. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Also, yeah. also, you know, like you know, even vid, like visual uh, conceptual artists now, they'll you know, um, Anthony Gormley. Um, Anthony Gormley does this. I forget the name of the piece, but which has he just fills a room with small uh, little figures, quite rough, but with two eyes, uh, right. and covers every every bit of floor space so all you do is stand in an open doorway and they just stare down wow um 
there is no way Anthony Gorby personally made all those things. He just got it. He just got a lot of art students to do it. Right? That's right. his conception. That's what he was in the space. He'll give them a rough. They shouldn't be bigger than or smaller than go. And you know that's he. He designed. You know, uh, Harryhausen designs the world. You know, I'm sure he'll work directly on various sculptings in modeling and doing the. Well, but he would have focused. He would have. On his, he would have yeah. focused on the selenites and the moon. Yeah, yeah indeed. Yeah. Meanwhile, there needs yeah, to be, exactly. you know, there needs to be a moonscape made. There needs to be um, the the catacomb, the, the stairs where the yeah. the area yeah. where the mushrooms are, and that did a team of sculptors, wow. and that included Nigel Neal's brother. Amazing, amazing. Oh my God, that's really uh, that's key. Well, that only reinforces my argument that it was a cohesive environment. In, indeed, which is as well. Yeah. You have been listening to Birdcast. Thanks again to Stephen Bissett for joining us. Look out for a bonus mini-episode coming soon, where Steve talks with us about Hammers, The Witches, and talks about some of his own work too. Birdcast is an independent production, and this episode was presented and edited by John Deere and me, Howard David Ingham. Speaking of John, I want to take a moment, because John isn't going to do this himself, to tell you about the other podcast John appears on, Due Signore in Giallo, where he and past Birdcast guest Dave Thomas explore the realms of stabby Italian cinema, a subject which I'm sure many of our listeners will enjoy. I'll link it in the description. Thanks for listening. Until next time.